Today's book that we're going to talk about is uh, quite an interesting little book. Three little chapters, but a powerful, powerful message, but a very intense message. And so I'm going to start off with an intense question. Does God really know what's going on? Uh, does he know what's going on in the world? Um, that was a question I think was, was true for uh, the people that Nahum was talking about. They were wondering, does God really understand what's just happened in our world? And, and Nahum is going to answer that. Um, next week when we look at Habakkuk, that question is actually addressed to God. But, but I want us to think about that question for a moment. Does God really know what's going on? Um, does he know what's going on in the Middle East? Is he paying attention to all of that? Does that matter to him anymore? Does it matter that this is a picture from our news? Um, this isn't an ancient picture. I'm going to show you some old pictures. Um, but this is stuff that's going on right now. Um, this is a picture from yesterday as uh, the bombardment is starting. And, and yet it's not just pictures from far away. We've all seen these pictures too, very personally involved tragedies that are taking place here. People's lives are being impacted because of warring nations. Is God paying attention to any of that? Does God care that all of that's going on? Is it a part of God's plan? Does God have a plan for the nations? And and my answer to you from the book of Nahum is that, yes, God does understand everything that's going on, all of the details. He understands um, both sides of the atrocities. He understands the complications of it all, and he understands that the only solution is going to be the return of Jesus Christ to take his throne and establish peace. That's always been the plan. And and by the way, as that war is raging in the Middle East, it does raise another question, and that is, is there a future for ethnic Israel? Is God maybe finished with Israel because Jesus came and now the church is all a part of his plan? Well, I'm not going to go into all the details, but I'm going to tell you that part of what John just talked about that we taught in Nicaragua um, is a foundation for a lot of what um, the answer to this question is. And that is, there is a future for ethnic Israel, I believe the Bible says. First of all, because God's Old Testament promises were unconditional. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant are very clearly unconditional. God says, I will do this regardless of your performance. In fact, he confirms it very frequently after a time of disobedience. So God guaranteed that he's going to fulfill these promises to Israel. And here's the nature of some of those promises. They are eternal. God says that there'll be an eternal possession of the land. They will possess, the, that God's people, the descendants of Abraham, will possess the land forever. Now, not by their own might, not by their own power, <laughs> but when Jesus Christ comes back and sets everything right. But they will possess the land forever. Messiah will reign forever. There will be a time of peace that will go forever. Well, the only way that can happen is if Jesus who is the one who lives forever, is reigning, and there's a time of peace when time comes to an end. And I believe that is still future for us. Um, there's a very relevant verse in Luke chapter 21 that, that addresses this as well. Luke chapter 21 says this, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, and by the way, every now and then when I look at the headlines and I notice that there's attacks from the north and attacks from the south, uh, I, I see a skip of this rock of prophecy. 
When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you'll know that the desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is a time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. By the way, this is about Jerusalem. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So let me try to set this in, in its uh, national current day perspective. Um, I don't think this is happening right now because Jerusalem is actually on the offensive in what we're seeing here. But there will be a time when there is a pushback. And, and all of that is going to happen, and a key phrase at the very end of that is, until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. There's a time where God is, is um, filling up his, his kingdom with, with Gentiles. Once that is fulfilled, then God is going to then, through Jesus Christ, restore the nation of Israel to a place of faith. Not because they will get it just because they're Jewish. There will be a revival in the land. I could show you the verses, but just trust me. There's a future for ethnic Israel. And what's happening in the Middle East right now is something I believe God is paying attention to, just like in Nahum's day, God was paying attention to what was happening to the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, the surrounding nations and how they attacked, and God was going to set things right. And what we're going to see in Nahum is this, that Nineveh is going to fall. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, is going to fall. The nation that had attacked the northern kingdom is going to be punished for its atrocities. Danny Hayes says this, In the latter half of the 8th century BC and throughout the first half of the 7th century, the Assyrians with their capital at Nineveh, ever growing in power and ferocity, expanded their empire all the way to Egypt, completely destroying the northern kingdom of, of Israel in 722 BC and unsuccessfully besieging Jerusalem in 701. The Assyrians were on the move. The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all have sections that prophesy judgment on the powerful nations of the region. Nahum, our book today, functions somewhat similarly within the book of the Twelve, the minor prophets, announcing judgment on the dominant world power of the day, Assyria. The Assyrians invaded, they took captive and, and scattered the northern nation of Israel, and they did it with ferocity. They were the most ruthless nation in the ancient world. And God was paying attention. He was using them to accomplish his discipline of his people, but he was paying attention. This was a great empire. This is a, 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 modern, arch, a modern rendition of what um, ancient Nineveh would have looked like. Um, this is a picture in the British Museum based on archaeological work and drawings from those times of what the foundations of the city would have looked like there uh, uh, along the Tigris River. Okay? Um, before war broke out in this region uh, in the last 25 years, um, this is what the city would have looked like, a, a rebuilding of a little bit of that same area. Um, since the war, um, a lot of that has been destroyed, and this is a more recent rebuilding and, and trying to get that city back to a place, but it's obviously nothing like what it used to be. 
To understand all of this, I've got a lot of resources, a short little book, but I've got a lot of resources out there that I think you'll find helpful. The chart on the, on the book is out there, some stuff on the historical background of the book, um, something particularly about the destruction of Nineveh um, that is um, a historical record of what happened that Nahum is prophesying. Nahum prophesies it's going to happen, and it actually did happen, which is why uh, one of the resources I have out there, the last one, is, is a list of all of the prophecies that, that Nahum makes about the destruction of Nineveh and how they were historically fulfilled one for one. I put that out there for this reason, folks. The Bible is accurate. <laughs> you can trust the Bible. What was portrayed in this book actually played itself out in history word for word. It's two pages front and it's two pages of just here's the prediction and here's exactly how it happened. Because God is going to be faithful to fulfill everything that he said. And it's really important for us to believe that, that he would do what he said he would do to Nineveh and that he will do what he says he will do for um, Israel because it's on the basis of his historical performance that we can say he can do what he says he's going to do for us, and that's forgive us our sins and take us into heaven. We need to trust all of this stuff is real. Bruce Wilkinson describes Nahum this way. Nineveh was a city built to last. Surrounded by high walls, fortified with 200 towers, and encircled by a deep moat, it was truly an invincible and impregnable fortress, or so the Ninevites thought. But according to the prophet Nahum, the proud city and its inhabitants would be powerless to stand before the Lord's coming wrath. In the 150 years since Jonah's remarkable revival, the people of Nineveh returned to their defiant, immoral ways. Nahum's preaching is not a call to repentance like Jonah's, but a decree of death for an evil people who have worn out the patience of God. God did give them a chance. But they eventually got to the place where they stepped over the line. As we've talked before, there's a period in Israel's history where the kingdom is united and there's going to be a regathering. This, this regathering theme is going to uh, pervade all of the prophets and particularly the ones that we're going to start to see unfold here, here in the future. Um, but th the kingdom was united under Saul, David, and Solomon. That's uh, during a period of, uh, of great expansion and power. Then the kingdom is divided, and in 722, the Assyrians are going to come down and they're going to wipe out the northern kingdom. In 586, the Babylonians, who are going to be the ones that God uses to destroy the Assyrians that Nahum is talking about. Nahum is saying the Assyrians are going to be wiped out and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. It's by these Babylonians who take over. And then the Babylonians start to move. And the Babylonians are the ones who come down to the southern kingdom and take them away captive. Um, Nahum is an interesting prophet. We usually list him as a pre-exilic prophet, but the reality is he's a prophet that is talking about these pre-exilic times, but his message would have been um, really for both nations because the people had witnessed what happened in Israel, and so he is really an encouragement to the people who are in the south. So let's start working through um, this Nahum guy. Um, my guess is if you're flipping through your Bible and you're looking through Nahum, he's easy to miss because he's just three short chapters. But wow, this is um, an intense book. So who composed Nahum? We know very little about the guy. He was from a town named Ilkosh, but we don't know nothing about the, anything about that town. We don't even know where it's located. 
But we do know he was faithful to deliver a difficult message in a difficult time. Um, So we know almost nothing. But we know he was chosen by God to deliver a very intense message. He's not as creative and powerful as Micah. We saw last week, Micah's, he's, he's quoted by everybody. He's, he's paradigmatic in, in many, many ways. He's, he's not quite that creative, but he was clear and a bold communicator. The Lord chose him to reveal a very harsh side of God's character to Nahum and then use that to, debate, to, to purvey a comforting message. If you just read the first seven verses of the book, you'll get what I'm saying. So if you're tired of me talking, just read Nahum 1 through 7, 1, 1 to 7, and you'll get it. Um, we're going to see it. But, but God is, is revealed as, as a fierce judge who we can take refuge in. Who's the audience of Nahum? Nahum is addressing the atrocities of the Assyrian Empire and especially its cruelty to the northern nation of Israel in 722. That's what he's addressing, but that's, that's his topic. That's not his audience. The leadership, um, uh, under the leadership of Tiglath-Pileser III and Shalmaneser V, the later and later Assyrian ruler Sargon and his successor Sennacherib, there's all of these invasions that the Assyrians have. In 722, they come down, they wipe out the northern kingdom. In 701, they make a run at Jerusalem under the rule of Hezekiah, and and, um, Hezekiah prays and the Lord delivers Hezekiah, and um, the Lord sends an army to defeat the, the... the army of Sennacherib, and Sennacherib actually goes home, and because of that defeat, um, his sons kill him, and they take over the kingdom. So when was Nahum written? (laughs) An exact date for Nahum is difficult uh, to determine, but general parameters are clear. So we we don't know exactly, but we know when it had to have happened, okay? Nahum mentions the fall of the Egyptian city of Thebes in 3.8, which took place in 633. So he mentions that as a historical fact. He, he mentions it's already happened. So this has to happen after 633. We know he wrote after that event. Nahum repeatedly predicted the invasion of the fall of the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, which happened in 612 at the battle um, right after the battle of Carchemish. So Nahum must have delivered his prophetic message between 663 and 612. We know it happened in there because he mentions one and the other thing hasn't happened, okay? So he's somewhere in between, probably closer to the conquering of, of Thebes in 663. So a lot of people feel like around 660. Why was it written? Now we're going to get to some shocking things because most people aren't familiar with Nahum. I mean, I don't know how many of you just were like, yeah, I've been, I've been in Nahum for months now. My guess is that's not happening for you. <laughs> here's Here's why. <laughs> Nahum is written to clearly present the justice of God. The Assyrians were perhaps the most violent and cruel kingdom in the ancient world. Israel experienced this in 722 BC, and Nahum reminds God's people that his enemies will not get away unpunished. I don't know how often you need that message. But Nahum reveals the righteous character of God in indignant judgment. God is righteous, and sometimes that expresses itself in fierce, indignant, angry judgment. But he also presents the faithful character of God in fulfilling promises and the comforting character of God in revealing those truths. Ultimately, the message of Nahum is comforting, which corresponds with the meaning of the prophet's name. Nahum's na- Nahum, the name, means comfort. So Nahum is presenting this comforting message, but the comforting message is this. There's a wrathful God who will avenge all of those who have been cruel to the people of God. So it is a comforting message that's full of wrath. 
It's a really fascinating book. Let's look at some of what's going on here, and I'm going to give you a little bit more of the background here. The book is organized really simply, three chapters. There's kind of the introduction to Nahum that tells us he's Nahum, he's from Elkosh, we don't know anything else. Then we're introduced to the judge, the character of God. Then we're introduced to the judgment on the city in chapter 2, and then the evaluation of that, why they're being judged. And in the middle, there are every now and then these little notices that are going to say, but God's people take refuge in him. And God's going to restore his people to a place of blessing. I've got a chart out there that displays it. I've got some some pictures in there. Um, there, There's a cylinder, by the way, that that gives a record of all of the invasions that we're uh, we're talking about, the Assyrian invasions and Babylonian invasions. We have a lot of archaeological evidence for all of that. So here's the message that I'm trying to summarize in today's message. Nahum delivered an oracle from the Lord, portrayed as an avenging divine warrior, declaring the complete destruction of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, because of their cruelty and treachery against the Lord and his people, and promising that the Lord would restore Judah to a place of blessing and peace in order to encourage Judah that the Lord is just and will fight for his people. God is presented as this avenging divine warrior. He's going to judge the people who need to be judged, and that should be an encouragement to those who really do take refuge in him. The resettlement policy of this neo-Assyrian empire under Shalmaneser and Ashurbanipal and these guys um, prevented any threat of a patriotic resurgence from a conquered people. The Assyrian captivity of ancient Israel, during which several thousand Israelites from the kingdom of Israel were forcibly relocated by the Assyrian empire, was no different. The Assyrians would invade, they would take the population and forcibly relocate them and then take people from the other places they had um, uh, conquered and bring them to the area that they were just conquering, in this case, in Israel. And what that essentially does is it prevents anybody from really gaining a, a, a patriotic force to say, hey, let's stand up for our country. They're not allowing them to do that. The kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Neo-Assyrian monarchs Tiglath-Pileser and Shalmaneser V in 722. And Sargon and Sennacherib were responsible for finishing the 20-year demise of Israel's northern ten-tribe kingdom. They invaded the southern kingdom of Judah in the time of Hezekiah, but Jerusalem was besieged, but Sennacherib's army was defeated by an angelic host. So they were pushing down into the south. In 722, they wiped out the north. They were trying to go to the south, and they got to Jerusalem. They were on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and Hezekiah prays, and God says, I'll save you, and I'll save the nation, and he sends an angelic horse, uh, force that turns back the army of the Assyrians. Here's a verse from 1 Chronicles that talks about this. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pol. That seems to be a diminutive name for um, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took him into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, and brought them to Halah, Harar, Harar, and the river of Gozan to this day. They were just scattered and taken to these other places. We read in 2 Kings this, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal. Um, Shalmaneser had conquered and really basically said, you pay me a lot of tribute and I'll leave you alone. Um, But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to to, uh, the king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria. 
as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan, in the harbor river, and in the towns of the Medes. They're scattered, and that sounds kind of nice. But the Assyrians in their battle practices were some of the most vile and cruel people you could ever imagine. And so their cruelty, um, one picture of it is, is this. There are a lot of uh, pictures that I could show you um, of Assyrian kings who are coming back from battle holding the heads of their captors. Often what they would do is they would take the pile of heads of the warriors and pile them up after they had taken the doors off of the gates of the city, and they would pile up the heads there to basically say, we're in charge. Okay, now this sounds ancient, but it also sounds, unfortunately, like things I'm hearing in the news today. Is God paying attention to it? I think he is. I think he is. But God is going to start off this message by revealing his character. Carl Armerding says this, Nahum's prophecy is rooted in the Lord's revelation of himself at Sinai as a God of judgment and mercy. Characteristics that apply to his dealings with both his own people, judgment and mercy, Israel, and the various nations he used to accomplish his purposes. God is going to judge them and be merciful. He's going to judge and be merciful to everyone. The notable self-portrait of this God, Yahweh, in what has been called a hymn of the divine warrior provides the basis for the increasingly specific application in God's judgment and mercy in the remaining verses of the book. So we're going to start off with this hymn to the divine warrior. Hold on. Here we go. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is um, in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds of dust of his feet. <laughs> this is, we're jumping in. This is verse two. God is a, a, an avenging God. He's slow to anger. He waits 800 years before he deports uh, the Israelites. He gives the Assyrians a chance with Jonah. He's slow to anger, but there comes a time when he says, I've had it. It's now time for judgment and justice. He's going to go on. He rebukes the sea and dries it up, makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither with the blossoms of the, uh, when the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Um, this is intense, folks. <laughs> You cannot stand before this God. You may um, be living in his patience, and you may be thinking you're getting away with it, but he will deal with his people and with his enemies. Although he's going to be patient in doing all of that. But the time comes when his wrath is there. And it's divine wrath, it's worthy wrath, it's, it's controlled wrath, but it's wrath nonetheless. 
And then right on the heels of this, we read this verse. The Lord is good, a refuge in time of troubles. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. We sing this song. There's not a song that's been written about the first six verses. It's just not written out there. <laughs> um, but both things are true of God. He is just and he is merciful. And the thing you have to do is you have to recognize that he cares for those who trust in him, but his enemies he will judge. So what's the lesson there? Trust in him. Align yourself with him and his purposes. Don't align yourself with um, the violence of the world, with the selfishness of the world, with the patterns of the world. God is, he is fierce, but he is compassionate because he knows what it takes. By the way, there's three charges that the prophets bring against the nation of Israel. The three charges are idolatry, ritualism, and social injustice. After the captivities by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, there's never any more idolatry in Israel. Plenty of ritualism, we're going to read about that in Malachi. Social injustice, probably going on today, but not idolatry. Because God disciplined them to get them to the point where they dealt with it. And it's very clear that this is judgment on Nineveh. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break the yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. Nineveh is going to get what is due them. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols. They are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for, for you are vile. <laughs> um, God is going to completely wipe them out. And the article I have out there on the battle of Nineveh will demonstrate this city is wiped out. In fact, when Alexander the Great is passing through this area, he doesn't even recognize that Nineveh was a great city because it had been so thoroughly destroyed by the Babylonians. And yet, look there on the mountains, the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. Paul quotes this, celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed because the people God was using to judge you are going to be judged which is exactly the context. Your sin will be judged, and so now there's good news because Christ is here. An attacker avenges against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the rose, brace yourself, marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Though destroyers have laid them waste and ruined their vines. You may have laid God's people waste, but he's going to destroy you. And a flood's going to destroy the city. The river gates are thrown open and the places, the palaces collapse. It is decreed that Nineveh will be ex exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves and beat on their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but, um, but no one turns back. The reports of the conquering of what happened in Nineveh has everything to do with the water source. <laughs> this river that runs in front of it, um, the Babylonians block the water source and are able to enter the city underneath the gates. And then a storm came and flooded the city after the Babylonian army had entered in. It's exactly what Nahum is describing. 
And they were obsessed with these lions. <laughs> um, where now is the lion's den, the place where they feed their young, where the lion and lionesses vent, and the cubs uh, with nothing to fear? The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled his prey for his mate, um, filling his lairs uh, with the kill and his dens with the prey. Um, here's a, uh, a piece of archaeology that portrays these Assyrian kings hunting lions. I'm going to zero in on one part of it. This, this is what these kings did. They loved to hunt lions. And he's basically saying, where are the lions now? He's going to go on to say this. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. You guys are so proud of yourself. Your, your kings are out there hunting lions. Where are your lions now? Endless violence and evil. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead's body without number, people stumbling over the corpses. What they have done to others is going to be done to them. All because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistresses and sorcerers, it's evil, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and people by her witchcraft. They're going to be judged for what they have done. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. <laughs> Here's the taunt. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with fil filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a skeptical. Is anybody thinking what I'm thinking? I will taunt you a second time. In fact, I was thinking maybe I could show the clip, but I thought, no, I don't have time to show the clip, but I want to show the clip. I'm French. Why do you think I have this outrageous accent, you silly king? What are you doing in England? Mind your own business. If you will not show us the grail, we shall take your castle by force. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs. Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person. I'll blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. You and all your silly English niggas. What a strange person. Now look here, my good man. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough whopper. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. Is there someone else up there we could talk to? No, now go away or I shall taunt you a second time. I mean, this is what the Lord's saying. I'm going to pull your skirt over your head. The nations will see your nakedness. I will spew filth on you. All because of their evil. And it's going to end up in total destruction. There the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. They will devour you like a swarm of locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers. Multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants. They are all more numerous than the stars of the sky, but like locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. That's what you guys have been like. Your guards are like locusts, your officials like swarms of locusts. They settle on the walls on a cold day, but when the sun appears, they f fear uh, they fly away. King of Assyria, 
Your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you, your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? It's a perfect description of the Assyrians. Everyone knew their cruelty. And everyone's happy that they're being judged. And their wound is fatal. So what do we do with all this? Wow, what a harsh message. <laughs> Nahum is concerned to assure God's people that he will judge their oppressors. Nahum prophesies against, uh, judgment against all of God's enemies. Uh, Assyria is just the symbol of God's enemies. <laughs> Nahum provides a clear message that God will address injustice, especially against the righteous. Injustices against the righteous, God will deal with. So what should we believe? God is just and will act in his own time to set things right. That's really the thing that makes this hard, isn't it? God acts in his own time. I like justice. I like revenge. I like it in my time. Being patient to wait for God's perfect justice is the hard thing. Injustice in any age, individual or political, is unacceptable. And God is a refuge. God's like a storm shelter, folks. When the storm is coming, you get in your shelter, you're safe. Um, Tom Constable says this as what we should believe. God's discriminating anger and vengeance against pride and cruelty arises from his great love for his people. I, mean, I think that's just so great in putting the message together. God will judge because he loves his people. So how should we behave? Leave vengeance in the hand of the Lord. Turn to the Lord in times of oppression and despair. Like Paul mentioned, it's not if, it's when. Waiting, waiting, waiting for justice to come from the Lord. So what are our next steps? Pray for our nation's leaders, all of them. All of our nation's leaders and all of the nation's leaders. Pray for them. Only God's intervention will make things improve. And only God's intervention when Christ returns will really set everything right. So pray for world leaders out there. Pray for patience as we wait for the Lord. In fact, here's what Titus says. Um, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are for his very own, eager to do what is good. While we wait for the blessed hope of the fulfillment of God setting everything right, keep yourself pure. 